Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak. I'm an economist and the executive vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. I have two guests this week. Marina Gorsig is a researcher at Mathematica. Hi, Marina. Hello. And Deborah Rowe is an associate professor of economics at the University of St. Thomas. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. And I'll remind everyone up front that everything we say today represents our own views and not necessarily those of our employers. Okay, let's dive in. So today we're going to talk about your research on renter protection policies, including for those with criminal records. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? And Marina, let's start with you. Yeah, so I am originally from Minnesota. I currently live in Minnesota, um, and I grew up in a pretty conservative area. Um, and I'm gay, and I experienced kind of like a lot of bias and harassment growing up, and was really involved in like LGBT rights and policies surrounding that, even like in high school. And I kind of through that, I think I became really interested in how policies in general impact marginalized communities. And so my research has really focused on discrimination broadly, um, especially in the labor market, but also in uh, mortality, um, interactions with police, and kind of a wide range of of areas. Um, And then since moving back to Minnesota, I've gotten really interested in studying a lot of local policies or kind of you know, how to make where I live a a better and more equitable place. So a lot of my recent research, and especially with Deborah, has really focused in on um, policies that are happening in Minnesota and Minneapolis. Okay, great. And Deborah, how about you? Uh, So um, I'm a labor economist. A lot of my research uh, interests kind of overlap with Marina. Um, But yeah, as I was listening to Marina's sort of story, it just reminds me of, you know, how important diversity is in, in our profession, just with kind of what our backgrounds kind of lead us to in terms of um, research questions. So for me, sort of my background, um, I grew up in an immigrant family. And so I feel like I've always kind of had these questions about like, how are immigrants different? Are they different? And kind of what are the reasons for that? Um, so earlier on, I um, my research kind of focused a lot on sort of the um, labor market outcomes of, of immigrants in the U.S. And then to kind of get into kind of how we ended up uh, studying discrimination in rental housing, we, Marina and I actually, we both went to Duke for our PhDs and somehow both ended up in the Twin Cities. And we started work on looking at labor market discrimination here in the Twin Cities, kind of focusing on the experiences of the Somali immigrant um, community and kind of looking at, well, specifically, I guess we did a field experiment and looked at callback rates um, from employers. And we were interested in how was the experience of Somali Americans sort of different from, you know, other African Americans, which had been studied a lot previously. Um, and sort of towards the end of that study, we um, were talking just one day about this policy um, that we heard uh, was being implemented in uh, Minneapolis in the rental housing market that was not exactly the same, but similar or had some similar aspects to ban the box policies in employment, which we were very familiar with. Um, you know, with your work, um, Jen, as well as, you know, others who have studied that, we were concerned that uh, a policy similar to ban the box and rental housing could have sort of unintended consequences. And we uh, were trying to figure out, could we look at that? Um, and we, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, how we were able to like come up with, with this particular research question. 
Awesome. Okay. So your paper is titled The Impact of Renter Protection Policies on Rental Housing Discrimination. And we'll talk more about the details of these policies you're studying in a moment, but let's start with some context. So Deborah, tell us a little bit more about what the problem is that these policies are trying to solve. Yeah. So um, something like 70 to 100 million Americans have uh, some kind of criminal history. Um, And you know, research shows that this creates barriers in a lot of different ways, um, barriers in terms of employment, housing, education. And of course, that's very challenging for individuals to um, be able to, you know, move forward with their lives and, you know, successfully sort of be integrated into society. And so from a societal standpoint, we're also concerned that um, if people aren't sort of able to, you know, be successful, then there's going to be higher rates of sort of recidivism, of poverty, and so we're concerned about their well-being. So um, ban-the-box policies in employment are just one type of policy that um, is trying to help with that, bring down some of those barriers. And in employment, these policies are trying to help um, people with a criminal history kind of get their foot in the door in terms of, of jobs. And um, these are you know starting to be implemented or talked about in the rental housing market. So similar kind of goals um, as in uh, the the, uh, labor market with just um, kind of limiting the use of criminal history in the landlord's decision-making about renting to to different people. Okay. And Marina, tell us about this package of policies that Minneapolis implemented in 2020. What changes did these reforms make? Yeah. So it's an interesting set of policies, I think. The landlords, when they're considering people who've applied for their apartment or house or their rental unit, landlords are not supposed to consider certain convictions that they have on their record. So misdemeanors that are older than three years, most felonies that are older than seven. So they can still see that information, but they're not supposed to use it as part of their decision-making process. Similarly with evictions, um, they're also not supposed to consider evictions older than three years. And then there's some of these kind of broader things, um, not using a credit score cutoff. So it's relatively common if uh, prior to the policy that you'd see um, rental housing ads that would say something like you have to have a 650 credit score or above. So just using a specific credit score as a cutoff, this set of protection said, no, you can't do that anymore. It caps security deposits at one month of rent for most landlords. There is a couple of exceptions, but for most people, it was capped at one month of rent. And then not being able to require more income than three or more times the monthly rent. Um, So a pretty common requirement was to have your income had to equal three or more times the monthly rent. And this policy said um, it can't be three or higher. Like you can require certain amounts of income, but it can't be three or higher. So it has to be has to be lower than that. Okay, great. So all of these things are implemented at once, I gather. Exactly, exactly. So it was like this whole bundle that all came together and went into effect in June, 2020 for landlords with 15 or more rental units. Okay, great. And so Deborah, when you all heard about this and started thinking about, okay, how might this affect you know, the goal here is to reduce discrimination in the labor market. The goal is to help people who are more disadvantaged get access to housing. Uh, so as economists, how did you think about how these different changes might affect 
uh, individuals access to housing? What potential mechanisms and behavioral responses should we have in mind here? Yeah, um, that's a, a really good question. I guess, especially because with this particular policy, you know, landlords still have access to all the same information. So as Marina talked about, it's that they're not supposed to use sort of older um, criminal history. They're not supposed to have a specific credit score cutoff. But because they do have access to all that information, you would imagine that it's probably difficult to enforce that usage. So in thinking about kind of what the, the reaction would be, we can't necessarily know if they would change their behavior and like just kind of disregard that older, for instance, older uh, criminal history information. But um, it is the case that they are no longer able to just put like a blanket statement on like a housing ad that says things like, you know, no criminal history, which is something that that we do, do see in the ads. Um, they're no longer able to just do that upfront. So in a way they can't as easily screen people on that information. And so, I mean, ideally you, you might hope that that would give more people access, those, for example, with a criminal history. But of course, we're concerned also about the unintended consequences, specifically about increased statistical discrimination. So um, we're worried that if landlords still want to avoid uh, renting to you know, those with a criminal history or with a particular kind of credit score, and they can't as easily screen on those characteristics up front, then they may sort of resort to screening on, you know, other characteristics that are, you know, correlated with things like criminal history, um, such as, you know, race or ethnicity. So we're, we're concerned that there might be an increase in, in discrimination against certain groups. Yeah. And you can imagine, like, even if in theory they have all the same information, I guess there's the the potential here that they worry that, you know, if they get an applicant who has a criminal record they don't like but aren't supposed to base their decision on, they might get into trouble if they deny their application. And so there might be more sort of pre-screening and guessing ahead of time to try to avoid getting applicants that they don't want to have to deny later. So there is like, yeah, I agree. The potential here that there's going to be some guessing and statistical statistical discrimination when we're trying to, you know, remove some of this information from the decision-making process. Exactly. Yeah. So Marina, what had we known before about the effects of policies like this? You've talked a little bit about ban the box policies and we should remind people what those are, but there are, there's been other research too. So how do you think about kind of the state of the literature um, when you, when you all first started thinking about the study? Yes. So a lot of what we were familiar with kind of when we started was the ban the box literature. And so in employment, there's often times like on an employment application, literally a box that you check um, that says, I have a criminal, I have, I've been convicted of, and it'll kind of vary, I guess, based on what it is, but usually it's like, I've been convicted of a felony or I've been convicted of certain crimes on your employment application. And so ban the box says, oh, we have to take this particular box off the employment application. And so kind of similarly, oftentimes employers will have access to that information later if you do it, um, but it's kind of taking that initial box off of an employment application. And so this has been studied 
quite a lot in the labor market. And so that was, um, since Deborah and I are both mostly coming from a labor uh, background, that was really what we were uh, most familiar with. And, you know, it's, people have found a wide range of different outcomes. Um, some have found increased employment in the public sector. Uh, others have found relatively little change. And then um, a number of studies have found increased discrimination, particularly against Black and Latino men. Um, so these policies that are trying to, to really increase access with this unintended consequence of increasing discrimination against Black and Latino men. And just to clarify that, so there are a couple, I think there's a distinction here in the literature between like what the effects are of people on people with criminal records that we were trying to help and their, their effects are between like null and maybe some benefits in the public sector. And then there's the question of how it affects Black and Hispanic men who don't have a criminal record, who now can't signal up front that they have a clean record. And so now they're the ones who might be harmed if employers are trying to guess who has a record and can't ask up front. So that's where we see some, we see evidence of decreased employment and that's where the discrimination comes in. And so that's the unintended consequence you were talking about before. Yeah. And then uh, kind of similar studies have looked at other ways of kind of reducing information. Um, so things like whether or not um, having drug testing in the employment process can reduce discrimination or increase discrimination. And so there it's kind of similar when you reduce information and you're in areas where you don't have drug testing as part of some employment application processes. Okay, let's see if I said this the right way here. Without <laughs> the drug testing, you have uh, tend to have more discrimination or more disparities in, in employment than when you have more information or you are able to do those types of things. Um, similarly with including credit history and things like that. So reducing information generally in the labor market tends to have this unintended consequence of increasing discrimination. Great. Had we known anything about the effects in the housing market? There has been a lot of research kind of in discrimination in housing, especially in homeownership, kind of what are some of the driving factors in, in differences in homeownership rates, as well as some looking at uh, discrimination in rental housing. There's really not been very much research at all looking at the impacts of these types of policies on housing discrimination. Okay. So Deborah, why don't we know more than we do about the effects in the housing market. I agree. This is like, this does seem to be the next frontier. These policies are becoming increasingly popular, but I agree. There's very little, we know very little about what impacts they're having. So what makes this so difficult to study? Has this been mostly a data challenge or an identification challenge or something else? Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's um, both. So in the context of housing, we don't really have great data on the sort of individual's search for rental housing um, to be able to really see kind of what that process is like to consider like how a particular policy might impact that. Um, similarly, we don't have a lot of detailed data on how landlords are are making their decisions. So I, I definitely think there's that data aspect. But even if, if we did, um, there's the additional challenge of identifying that causal impact of, of whatever policy since, you know, we can, if we're looking at discrimination, we can look at it, try to look at it before and after a policy. But of course, there's other things that can be changing that could affect that in that same time frame. Um, so there's the challenge of how to control for those things or how to come up with a, another, a, a control group that's well suited to that kind of question. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting to compare 
the type of study you can do in the housing market versus the labor market. So in all those labor market studies, I mean, sometimes it's a it's an effect on like actual employment or using, you know, administrative data or the big surveys or whatever. But thinking of the Amanda Egan and Sonia Starr paper where they they sent out fictitious job applications, randomizing whether it's someone with a black or white sounding name who applied and then whether or not they had a criminal record or not before and after the criminal, before the band, the band the box went into effect. And that's possible with jobs because you have a job application that doesn't, that we're like the next step would be basically a callback to get an interview. But with housing, usually the first step is like actually applying for the apartment you're going to rent or applying to, or like submitting an offer to buy the house or something. Right. And so there it's much harder to just to, to have like that initial step because immediately they're going to start running all the numbers and realize that this is a fake person who has sent, who's submitted this application. And so, so you have to be a little more creative in the housing market with thinking about what the first contact you can have with a landlord to see if they were are interested in renting to you and what their inclination might be to accept or you know discard your application. So I think that's also just made studies like this a little harder in the housing market and I think you guys do a really nice job of of dealing with this in your paper. So um you're in a use a combination of this policy change that you were just talking about to measure the combination of the policy change and a field experiment to measure the effects of these this package of reforms you were just describing on housing access. So Marina, walk us through how you combine these two experiments, the policy change and then the field experiment that you and Deborah are going to run. Awesome. Yes. So we knew that the policy was going to go into effect June 2020 for large landlords. Well, we're supposed to. And then there were some legal challenges. So it was a little unclear whether or not it was going to be enforced or not, but it was. The legal challenges were not, they were kind of turned down by the court. So it did go into effect June 2020. And so what we needed to do was start beforehand, right? Because we needed to see what was happening before the policy went into effect. So there is some possibility that landlords were already starting to change their behavior before the policy, but that might happen. So what we do is we sent these inquiries uh, to publicly listed housing ads, and we used emails that were coming from names that sounded uh, white American, African American, or Somali American. This is in the Twin Cities area. We have a large Somali American population here. Um, so wanted to kind of see if there's any difference between multi-generational Black Americans versus like a, a newer refugee and immigrant population. Um, so we had like these three sets of names for race and ethnicity, and then um, also varied by gender. And so what we did is we then emailed uh, landlords from ads that we had found on Craigslist. And we started six months before the policy went into effect. So we started January, 2020, and then went through June, 2021. So what we have then is a measure of how much people or like how landlords are reacting to these emails before the policy goes into effect and then after the policy goes into effect. We did this in Minneapolis where um, the policy applied as well as St. Paul and the contiguous suburbs um, where the policy wasn't going into effect. So there were no changes there. So 
what this gives us is a measure of discrimination before the policy in Minneapolis, as well as in St. Paul in the suburbs, um, and then after the policy. So we're able to look at the change in Minneapolis, and then we're also able to look at the change in Minneapolis and St. Paul um, as kind of our control group. Great. So you've got kind of a baseline difference across these groups, like these groups might not be treated the same, you know, before all of these changes started happening. And then you've got the change in the policy, which if they worked, should close these racial gaps. Um, You know, it should be making it easier for more disadvantaged groups, both the Black Americans and Somali Americans to get get their foot in the door and get access to housing. And that should only be happening in Minneapolis, not in St. Paul, because policies did not change in St. Paul. So that's the hope. But if you have unintended consequences, then you'll see the gap widen in Minneapolis, but not St. Paul. So you've kind of got this, you've got this beautiful triple difference. Okay. Awesome. So you've got these, these housing ads that you're responding to. So let's dig into the kind of the nitty gritty details of this, this experiment a bit more, because this is the, you know, that design is is beautiful and intuitive and makes a lot of sense, but actually doing this is a ton of work. <laughs> so, so <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> all easier said than done. So let's talk about all the work you did um, to make this happen. So Deborah, how did you find the housing ads that you responded to? What do these ads l- usually look like? Yeah, so we had um, our research assistants apply to postings on Craigslist. So submitted sort of inquiries very broadly um, for studios, one bedrooms, um, and two plus bedroom units. These were postings for the entire unit. So not someone who's like looking for a roommate and sort of different rules apply in terms of discrimination. Most of the ads gave the basic description of the unit and its location, you know, with photos. Important for our study, some ads included language like you know, clean criminal background or no felonies. Um, And we do actually see a a drop in that language um, after the policy. The other thing I guess to note is that we restrict uh, the data in this study to the ads that included a company name for the landlord. This was to try to make sure that we're looking at landlords who had 15 or more units Um, because for them, the policy went into effect in June 2020. Um, But for smaller landlords, it went into effect six months later. And so uh, with these ads that have the company name, we were able to kind of look up a certain subset of them Mm -hmm. to check and see, do they have, you know, 15 or more units? And for those that uh, we checked, like 95% of them did have uh, 15 or more units. So we um, limit the study to those uh, large landlords. Okay, great. So you're targeting kind of like buildings that rent out a ton of apartments, not just kind of like, you know, someone who has a spare apartment over their garage or something and rents that one that one apartment out. Um, and this is all through Craigslist. So you basically are in a setup where you would email the landlord for more information. It's not like you submit an application through the website or something. So that's nice for you. So then Marina, what do you do next? How do you respond to these ads? And what did your responses look like? Yeah, so we set up a number of female email addresses that had these names that varied on perceived uh, race, ethnicity, and gender. And we pre-tested those names so that their equivalent uh, socioeconomic status 
sounding names because names signal a lot more than just your, your uh, potential race and gender. So we set up these emails and then email addresses. And then we used uh, a Python program that um, another group of researchers had developed that creates anything like randomized that you want. So we've used this in the past to create resumes. Uh, in this case, we used it to create an email text. And so uh, it had basically a library that it could select from in terms of a greeting, a statement about seeing the rental listing, a line expressing interest, um, and then a closing, and then the name. So the name was signaled in the email text itself, as well as the email address that it was sent from. So we had um, two different spots that the name was to make sure that they saw it. But then the email texts were all different from each other because they were all randomized by this computer program. And then we had one version that was for uh, one bedrooms or studios where the person would talk about looking for an apartment for themselves. Uh, for the larger units, so those that were two bedrooms or more, they mentioned having a family um, since they're looking for a, for a larger unit. Okay, great. Do you happen to have uh, some of the email text handy that you could you read one of the emails to us just so we can hear what, could you pull it up? Yeah, here we go. Let's since, they're, since they're short. <laughs> Yeah, here's one. I am interested in learning more about the property you listed for rent on Craigslist. I am looking for a new home and interested in this studio. Um, that was one for a, a studio apartment. Then it says, thank you. And then afterwards, um, the name. Okay, great. So the name you've carefully chosen to signal race or ethnicity, either this white, black, or Somali. And... You also talk a lot in the paper. So, so as we've said, there's a ton of work that goes into this. So you have this, this army of RAs, you've got this Python program to randomize all this stuff. And you also have to be careful that when you send the emails out, they don't seem suspicious. So you can't send like a hundred emails to one landlord, right? Because they would immediately think something weird is happening because these are slightly different emails, but they're not that different. So you had to do experiment a little bit. So tell us, just give us a little bit of the kind of like, sausage making behind the scenes about how you had to learn how what you could actually do here? Yes. So we started off sending three emails to each landlord and we lagged the emails. So the RA would send the emails all at the same time, but they wouldn't actually get sent out of the email box. Um, they were lagged between them, which was just to, so that they weren't all arriving at the exact same time. During COVID, this sending three per landlord became noticeable. Um, and so simply because like a lot of activity was decreasing, people weren't, people weren't necessarily going on tours as much uh, for, for potential rental properties and things like that. So the landlords were receiving a lot fewer inquiries. Um, and so even though the text was varied and there was a lag between them during COVID, we did uh, have to send fewer emails per landlord. So we dropped down to one um, and then bumped back up to two once things got back to a little bit back to normal um, so that to not be detected because we don't, the last thing we want to do is harm anybody. Um, and people can get upset if they, if they are, if they think they're being scammed, usually they think they're being scammed. They don't understand why they've gotten Three emails that sound kind of similar. They've not gotten any emails for a week and suddenly they get three that sound similar. Um, they thought they were being scammed. And so to avoid uh, trying to, you know, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable or to feel um, scared. Absolutely not. So 
that's where we drop down to to one per. Yeah, there's this sort of concern not only about like, you know, you want the responses to be the responses of people who believe that these are real emails from real people. And because that's the only way it tells you something interesting. Um, But there's also this broader concern about like poisoning the well. So you don't want people to generally be suspicious of all emails they receive ever on Craigslist, right? So yeah, for both reasons, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, we slipped right in there that like COVID was happening during this period, which you also had not planned on when you started this experiment. Uh, This is just like, you know, this is the way field experiments go. So you all started this pre-COVID. And then at what point in your whole process did the COVID shutdowns happen? Yeah, so we started data collection January 2020. Um, and then I think things, you know, people, I think things are starting to show up around March, mm-hmm. March 2020. Um, and so that's when we had to to dial back um, how okay. many emails we were sending. And then I think we increased, oh gosh, I can't remember the exact time. I can't find it, but um, probably like later July, in the summer. August. Yeah, yeah later in and the then summer. the policy went into effect in June. Was that right? Exactly. Okay, yeah. great. So that's the general timeline. So you've got, I mean, you've got a treatment and control group here. It's random, but there is this general decline in traffic, which of course slows down the rate at which you can send emails and just reduces your power a little bit. Um, yep. Yeah. And we were also concerned, you know, if if we're affecting the number of inquiries that the landlord is getting, that mm-hmm. could change their behavior. Uh, right. If you're getting more inquiries, you're like, oh, a lot of people are really interested in my apartment. I can discriminate. Um, if you're not getting right. very many inquiries, then you're like, <laughs> oh gosh, I guess I can't act. I have this discriminatory belief, but I can't act on it. Or this is the best, uh, you know. So uh, we were concerned that we were, in fact, changing the level of discrimination by changing the number of inquiries we were sending. Yeah. So we did check whether or not um, we found more or less discrimination with, like when we, when we sent three, did we see more discrimination, like when they're getting more inquiries mm-hmm. and we didn't see that. So hopefully we weren't like causing any changes in discrimination based on the number of inquiries that we were sending. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the ideal, uh, the the goal here is that it's just like one of many emails they're receiving about this apartment. Yeah, yeah. And then just to clarify quickly, like once they responded, you then followed up and said, we're no longer interested, right? Just so that everyone was not waiting around. They could move on to their next person. Yes, exactly. Okay, great. Okay, so you send these emails out, say, hello, I'm interested in this apartment. And then Deborah, what outcome measure are you interested in? What responses are we getting back here that are going to tell us something useful? So we were interested in the rate of positive responses from the landlord. So we uh, defined positive as moving forward to the next step. So that's was commonly an invitation to maybe tour the property. Um, we didn't count just these like automatic responses that were asking for me more information or for you to fill out some kind of form. The most common response was just ghosting, like no response from the landlord. And you would rarely get an outright rejection. Maybe occasionally a landlord might say that they've already rented um, out the the unit. Okay. So you're looking at basically, did this person essentially continue the conversation (laughs) and say like, yes, let's go move to the next step or something else? So that's the positive response versus anything else is negative. Is that right? Right. Okay, great. Okay. And then so let's talk about kind of the 
the pre-period baseline, so before the policy change happens, Marina, what do disparities in landlords' responses look like across your three groups? So the white emailers, African-American emailers, and Somali emailers who are interested in renting an apartment? So prior to the policy, we actually saw very little difference by race. Um, And so it's not to say that there was no discrimination. It was just that it wasn't showing up at this particular point in the inquiry process. Um, So the the three groups were getting called back at very similar similar rates prior to the policy. Okay, great. And then Deborah, how did this change after the policy reforms? What was the effect of the Minneapolis renter protection rules on discrimination against African-American and Somali renters? So we see sort of two different effects um, based on the size of the unit. So in um, with the two bedroom or higher, the bigger units, we see the disparity increase or going from essentially no disparity to a big disparity. So for specifically for uh, the positive responses for white applicants, we don't see a change or a significant change, but we do uh, see those positive rates drop for both African-American and Somali-American applicants. And um, I guess specifically that gap in the positive response rate between white and African-American applicants increased by 17.9 percentage points. And that gap uh, between white and Somali-Americans increased by about 20 percentage points. Uh, And we don't see uh, statistically significant changes for the one-bedroom postings. Okay, so the two bedrooms are probably more like family, targeting families or something like that or, yeah. Okay, so pretty big effects, pretty big increases in in disparities there. Marina, were there any interesting differences across types of renters or areas of the city? One thing that we found was that um, we saw larger increases in discrimination in neighborhoods with higher than average percent Black percent immigrant and percent Somali American people living. And we're not totally sure why. Um, and that's different from some of the of the findings previously in the literature as well. And that's not to say um, probably the landlords in those neighborhoods are probably still white. And so it's not, but it's, we think it's something about information, like maybe the names that we're using to signal race and ethnicity are clearer in those neighborhoods or to landlords in those neighborhoods. And so it might be that the the signal is more meaningful. And that's why we're seeing a larger increase in discrimination there. It may be that the kind of whiter neighborhoods, neighbors with fewer immigrants, uh, they may also have other ways to that they are kind of reacting to this policy, maybe farther down the line in the application process. Maybe they have other uh, less obvious ways of kind of weeding people out so yeah, we weren't we weren't quite sure what to take away from that, but we did find uh, a larger increase in discrimination with in those neighborhoods. Okay, and then then so that was just the kind of you know using your your treatment and comparison group before and after the policy change in Minneapolis, and then Deborah, you you also then layer in this third difference. You use the neighboring city of Saint Paul, um, the Twin City there, and other surrounding suburbs as a comparison group. So tell us why you're doing that and what you're doing here. And then tell us what you find. Yeah. So like we've been talking about, we're concerned that, you know, there's other factors that are changing other than the policy that um, could be affecting discrimination. So 
what we're trying to do with the essentially the triple difference is to use St. Paul and the the neighboring suburbs as a control group since the policy wasn't uh, passed in in those places. And then comparing the change in the discrimination due to or after the policy in Minneapolis to any change in discrimination in St. Paul and the suburbs. Um, and what we find when we do that is that the discrimination did worsen against both the African-American and Somali-American applicants in Minneapolis in those larger two-bedroom or higher units. And also we're, we're still seeing that there isn't an impact of the policy on the, the one-bedroom units. Okay. So if, yeah, if you're worried about like, you know, COVID's happening here, there are changes in labor markets, everyone's quitting their jobs, everyone's working from home, all kinds of other stuff. And maybe that is what's changing the dynamics in who landlords want to rent to. That should be affecting people in St. Paul equally to people in Minneapolis. So this, this, the triple difference allows you to sort of control for all of that and really just isolate the effect of this policy change. The landlords in St. Paul, in, in Minneapolis have to abide by these new rules and the landlords in St. Paul don't. And your effects basically get bigger. Is that, that's, is that what the right interpretation? Yep, exactly. Okay. So let's talk more about, um, we've, you know, we've mentioned COVID. <laughs> Basically, uh, you know, every field experiment has some unforeseen complications. I feel like this is the part of the interview where we try to make some grad students feel better about, <laughs> about the challenges they're running into and whatever research they're working on right now. So you had the COVID pandemic that happened. The other big thing that happened in um, during this time period in this context was the, the, were the George Floyd protests in Minneapolis. So Marina, tell us a little bit more about how these events affected your data collection and, and how you handled them in your analysis. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if we think about our identification strategy, we're looking at a policy that went into effect June 2020 in Minneapolis. And we do have St. Paul in the suburbs as our, as our control groups. So we look before, we look after, and then we compare that to what happened before and after in St. Paul. So something that's going to be really the hardest thing basically for us to deal with is gonna be something that happened specifically in Minneapolis at that same time that the policy went to effect. And so George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police uh, late May, 2020, uh, which is right before this policy goes into effect. And so there were a lot of protests in Minneapolis as well as St. Paul and as well as around the nation, around the world, um, and a huge kind of increase in awareness or kind of people wanting to, to do something about racial inequality um, and just a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of social concerns kind of came up about, about racism and about entrenched inequalities that we have. And so it's tricky in the sense that it happened in Minneapolis, but it had worldwide impacts. And um, so the aspects of kind of George Floyd being murdered and then also the protests afterwards, the aspects of those that um, kind of happened broadly or secularly, we can account for in kind of using in the, the triple difference and using St. Paul as a, as our control group here, because that would also happen there. Minneapolis 
things that happened more specifically in Minneapolis would be what um, could really impact our results. Um, it would make it hard to tell if it's if it's the policy or if it's the things that happened in Minneapolis. So the protests in Minneapolis were pretty locally focused in certain areas, like around the third precinct that was burned down. And so what we did was we mapped where the, well, we found a map. Somebody else mapped it. <laughs> uh, there was a map where um, all the property damage occurred. Um, and this was primarily in two zip codes. So we also did, we kind of reran our analysis and left out those zip codes. So we left them out before as well as after and kind of redid our just looking at Minneapolis before and after as well as the as the triple difference and uh, just left out everybody who was in those zip codes. And we find very similar results. Um, so when we do the whole analysis, so, you know, we don't want to say like our analysis is absolutely flawless and we've accounted for everything. These are absolutely weaknesses of, of this is something that happened in Minneapolis at the same time as the policy. And so we're doing everything we can to see if it is driving our results. And we don't think it is. But like you said, it's when you do a field experiment, other things happen that make it that can make it hard to get an exact identification on your on the thing that you're hoping for. Yeah, no, I think you guys do a nice job of, of addressing these events. I mean, to the, yeah, to the extent that it's something super local about what's going on in these neighborhoods where the protests happened and there's property damage and everything else, then dropping those areas, you know, solves that problem to the extent that it's something about greater awareness and, you know, maybe more empathy about people dealing with racism in some quarters and maybe increased discrimination in other quarters, you would expect that to affect kind of like have more of like a regional and to some extent national effect. But St. Paul and Minneapolis are pretty tightly connected cities. And so it makes sense to me that to the extent that this sort of these events just like affected like the zeitgeist in the area, it would affect St. Paul in the same way that it would affect Minneapolis. So feels reasonable. It's not a crazy assumption that you guys are controlling adequately by just like controlling by controlling for what's going on in St. Paul. And then if we're really worried about these concentrated effects to these properties, we can drop those and everything looks the same. Again, not perfect. No study is perfect, but I think you guys do a nice job of it convinced me that <laughs> that those weren't big problems here. Okay. So Deborah, what are the policy implications of these results? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from these findings? I think it's worth, you know, saying again how not a lot of work has done been done yet. Um with looking at these kinds of policies in housing. So we wouldn't recommend policymakers to, you know, draw very strong policy conclusions just from, from our paper. But with that said, our paper suggests that, um, you know, taking away information from landlords um, seems to lead to increased statistical discrimination. So maybe it would make sense to consider policies where you know, more information is given rather than less. So maybe an example of that could be like certificates of relief, which were um, geared towards the labor market, where um, like a judge would give some, like a kind of uh, stamp of good character to people with a criminal background who, you know, qualified. And um, this would sort of demonstrate like rehabilitation to, to employers. 
it's designed, I think, for the labor market, but there is, I think, one paper in Leisure and Martin 2017, um, which does consider the impact of, of these certificates of relief in um, rental housing outcomes and, and do find that it increases the likelihood of being considered by the landlord, specifically for someone who has a one-year-old felony. So maybe that could be you know, uh, an example of, of a policy where we're not taking information away, but giving more uh, information that's relevant uh, to the landlord. Um, and I think maybe other piece of this could be just recognizing, you know, that landlords may have a reason for sort of being reluctant to rent to certain certain kind of applicants and trying to understand better like what those concerns are and and trying to address them. So kind of going back to that the certificates of relief in the labor market, um, they also came with like negligent hiring immunity. So um, if you know, in that case, like employers are concerned about additional risk um, for certain employees, then that certificate would, you know, kind of get them off the hook in terms of, you know, lawsuits on on negligent hiring. Maybe something similar could be done in, in rental housing based on what the exact concerns are of the landlords. Yeah. So in this case, it's probably stuff like they're worried that someone won't pay their rent or that they're going to trash the place or something. So providing some kind of insurance for that might be effective. Marina, have any other papers related to this topic come out since you first started working on this study? Well, there has been, I think, some interesting work more generally, like we're talking about discrimination in housing and in rental housing. Uh, Not a ton that I have seen kind of focusing in on these policies that are um, kind of these renter protection policies. We haven't seen a ton of papers. If you have seen any, we'd be very interested in hearing about them. <laughs> of course, um, I, I think to, to our knowledge, we haven't seen any um, more come out that are specifically looking at um, kind of these types of policies in housing. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. But more and more states and cities are are passing them. So hopefully more people will be able to be like seeing what these effects are as more places pass them and implement them. Yeah, I know this is something that I'm keeping an eye out for paperwork in this area. I think it's a really great area for people to be trying to work in because, yeah, but because figuring out how to increase housing access is an important issue. We don't know how to do it. There are all of these concerns about, you know, potential unintended consequences. And so actually, you know, trying stuff, but then actually making sure it works is going to be important here. So along these lines, uh, let's talk about the research frontier. Deborah, what are the next big questions in this area that you and others are going to be thinking about going forward? Yeah, so kind of related to what we were talking about earlier, um, I think definitely more work should be done on the impact of, you know, other policies on housing discrimination for those with a criminal background. Like, um, as I mentioned, the the certificates of relief might be one example. More research on why landlords are reluctant to rent to certain kinds of applicants. And yeah, actually, um, Marina and I will be participating in like a, a convening of policymakers and landlords and other groups interested in their housing. And um, when talking to one of the organizers, they were saying they're very interested in learning more about that process for landlords to try to see, is there a better way to sort of address their concerns? So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, not just we, but you know, uh, researchers will be able to contribute to you know, making progress on that. Yeah. Marina, what's on your list? Yeah, everything that Brett said. And I think, yeah, I think 
I'm very intrigued at like landlords are, they're doing their best, right? And so they're trying really hard to use the information that they have to make decisions that make sense for them. And so helping figure out kind of like what Deborah was saying, what is it that's jumping out to them as being meaningful? And then showing or like figuring out whether or not that stuff is meaningful. If it is, right? Like if having a criminal record or if having a lower credit score, these types of things are meaningful in terms of somebody not paying their rent or somebody leaving a property with damages, then I think we do need to think about these bigger picture ways to reduce that risk in order to increase access because it's not very fair on some level to put this risk onto landlords. Uh, that is sort of government's job at a certain point. If the government wants to increase access to housing and the problem is risk, then the government can step in and ensure against that risk on some level. Um, so I think those types of policies could be really useful because I think a lot of landlords really are just trying to reduce their risk. Yeah, they're, you know, they're responding to incentives. Um, I I totally agree. Yeah, I I find these kinds of, yeah, interesting innovations where we're shifting the risk from employers or landlords to whether it's courts or government or nonprofits. Those seem really compelling to me. This is also a space where it just feels like building more housing would be helpful. Yes. (laughs) If there's just more supply, then then there's more to go around and there's less. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's just, yeah, everyone's willing to kind of go further down the applicant list because there's, there, there's, there are more apartments to be had. Great. Plenty more to do. Well, my guests today have been Marina Gorsig from Mathematica and Deborah Rowe from the University of St. Thomas. Marina and Deborah, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures and our other contributors for supporting the show. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. If you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El-Sheikh. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon. 